You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. It is November 5th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Time. And this is uh, Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. And I've been talking about Vipassana for the last couple of weeks, which I'm going to continue to, to do. Uh, but at the same time, um, we are still eagerly, is the word, awaiting the results from our elections. And uh, we're not going to have any for a day or two, it seems. Um, but it is interesting to live in a country that's so clearly divided in half uh, with such different... Uh, ways of being in the world and relating to the world. Um, Vipassana meditation, V means to divide and Pasana means to see clearly. And so to see these things as well clearly as we can. We've been uh, talking about this for a couple of weeks. In the first week, we just touched into sensory clarity, dividing uh, or touching into and developing uh, the capacity to track sensing activations in the individual sense gates. Uh, touching, seeing, hearing, uh, tasting, smelling. So we have the capacity to sense, and then we have mind, which is the six of the senses that make the raw sensing experience into something. So the eye sees light and form, and then uh, eye mind or eye consciousness makes that into something. And then that thing that we make it into, that conceptual reality that we make it into is based on our conditioning. So we have the object that can be sensed, it meets the capacity to sense. If there's contact, a, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises which is evaluated for processing speed, I like to call it. Vedna is the Pali word, uh, feeling tone is often translated as that. Danger, neutral, pleasant, urgent, neutral, pleasant. And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And when there's a close enough match, the meaning that's stored in the perceptual database, so memory and also imagination creates a representation of that internally, which is then projected outward. If the mind is equanimous, then the conceptual reality that we project outward is, is a fairly accurate representation of the sensing experience. And if the mind is distorted by some uh, mind state, then the way that we create conceptual reality is distorted by that. Uh, mind state. So if the mind is angry, the world looks angry. If it's happy, the world looks happy. So we want to pay attention to that uh, and develop enough sensitivity to it that we can watch that process unfold in real time. In the third stage of insight in um, Mahasi Sedao's commentary from the Vasudhimaga, 
he talks about the three characteristics or the three marks of existence, uh, anatta, which is not self, anicca, which is impermanence, and dukkha, which is often translated as unsatisfactoriness. Once you develop the capacity to meditate, then you begin to meditate on certain things or certain activities so that you can begin to develop insight into the nature of these things. What we're really looking for is a way of understanding the human condition and in a way that we can understand it. There was a, an article in the paper today that said that uh, the brain um, structures itself in 11 dimensions, which I found quite interesting. Um, although I have a hard time conceptualizing them. I, I used to have a friend, Paul Hoffman, uh, who died many years ago, who ran the uh, um, artificial intelligence lab at UCLA. And I would go out to lunch with him and I would uh, ask him to explain to me how the universe can exist in a non-expanding space and, and at the same time be continuously expanding. And he would write a, uh, a few quotations a few mathematical equations on a napkin and push it toward me, which was actually of no help. In the same way that this article describing the brain learning in 11 dimensions was no help for me to, to comprehend it. Um, so what you begin to learn, of course, is in the way that this is described, sometimes it's described in mathematical equations, and then there's the philosophy side that begins to describe it as a philosophical idea, a way of, of embracing it. So we have many ways to know things. Um, so when we look at these three characteristics and we, we apply meditation as a way of, uh, in some sense, deconstructing them or looking at them to see what it is that's actually happening, uh, the experience of self is one of those things that we begin to look at. Many of us, uh, or most of us, I would say, have this sense of the self, that this body is mine, it belongs to me, a particular person, a particular self, and I do things, and I cause things to happen, and I control things, and I eat things, and I do things. But what is it actually that experience of the self that we identify with and, and take ownership of, of the nature of our, our lives? What is that? And so we want to begin to investigate that through the meditation process to see what it is that makes that happen. And so in last week's meditation, we were talking about the uh, division between focus out and focus in, the sense of the outward sensing experience directed toward the creation of the experience of the outside world and the inside focus uh, on the, that experience of self. Internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking and emotion create this sense of ownership of the body and external sight space, external sound space, and the body's interaction with the environment creates the sense of the world out there. But it's all fixated and uh, established through this connection to the perceptual database and the history of our conditioning, and it's selected based on what has meaning to us. So we all uh, carry with us a hierarchy of things that we like to focus on, and then we create the environment that we're in based on the presence of those things or the absence of those things. And to begin to see those pieces 
uh, individually and then as they come together. The second uh, aspect of the three characteristics is uh, a niche or impermanence that everything comes and goes, nothing lasts. You can't rely on anything. Even the human body that you're currently inhabiting is gonna come and go. Um, hopefully you can have it to use as long as you want to, uh, or maybe longer than you want to. One of the things about aging is that as the body gradually uh, becomes less and less functional, our uh, a tenacious gripping to it tends to loosen to the point where we uh, can imagine slipping out of it. Um, so there's the large aspect, the macro aspect of that, where everything comes and goes, everything changes, nothing really remains the same. And then there's the micro aspect, each sensing experience arising and passing, each sensing event arising and passing. And that each moment of consciousness arising and passing, each moment of knowing or thinking we know what's happening arising and passing. And then how do you move into a place where this is what you've, this is how you understand the nature of the human condition and not latch on to this idea that things need to last, things need to be, need to be permanent, things need to be reliable. And you can move into this place of the, the flowiness of things. And then the last of them is dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as unsatisfactoriness or suffering. Dan, uh, one of my teachers, translates it as reactivity. The reason he likes reactivity, and I, I, I do too, is because we live in this body that has this capacity to sense things. And even if you come into perfect equanimity with that, and even if you see clearly that everything is created in this process of expansion and contraction, uh, we still react to everything because that's basically how we operate, the sensing aspects of the body remain. The first level of uh, uh, dukkha is that you live in a body which will grow old, get sick and die, that there's nothing you can do about it. Everyone you know, everyone you love, is of nature to change and there's nothing you can do to pre prevent being separated from them. And how do you come into this place where that's actually okay? Uh, it often puts us in a, in, at a fork in the road and one direction is nihilism and in the other direction is this uh, engagement, this, this uh, tendency to engage as fully as possible in each moment because the understanding is that each moment will not last. If you don't take what's there to be uh, taken, then it's gone anyway. The second is that aspect um, you may get what you want, but you're going to lose it, or you may not get what you want, or you may have to put up with things that you don't want. And then the last aspect is this subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything, which is a double-edged sword. It's not how you want it, and you're, you're not in charge. How do you then come into peace with that as well? And then in being with peace, uh, uh, with all of that, all of those uh, operations, all of those mechanisms, just operating don't cause distress, don't cause suffering. In fact, 
uh, it opens up the possibility of fully engaging in, in what's in front of you. Even uh, staring down that, that list of preferences, that you don't have to have a preference for what's available to you in the, more, in the moment. You know, if the, if the environment is full of things that you like and, and have high value to you, then you think the environment is very rich. But if they're not, if there's an absence of those, then you often think the environment is boring or uninteresting. And then can you be in either place? So this is actually what we're trying to see in the, the practice that we do. These uh, insights, let's call them. And yet what we're doing in meditation is sitting and just tracking the arising and passing of sensing experiences. Okay. Noticing how the mind directs our attention and how we gather mind moments and create conceptual reality out of noticing that uh, sometimes there's objects and sometimes there isn't. So in, in tonight's meditation, what I thought we would add to the mix of uh, see, hear, feel, focus in, focus out, was also focus on rest. But your attention can be drawn to sensing uh, the sense gate, and the sense gate cannot be active, so that you have this restful state. And then you can come into a place of abiding in the experience of just being without there needing to be constant activations which are uh, fulfilling or entertaining or distracting. And then beginning to develop this uh, clarity. If you have, for instance, a, uh, an interest in external sound and you're constantly listening to external sound, but then sometimes there's no sound, can you just be in that process of watching the arising and passing? Most of the time, what we do is jump from arising to arising to arising to arising. And in, in doing that, it begins to create this perception of things being continuously active, continuously ongoing. And we don't notice the falling away of things, the impermanence of things. And so in order to be able to see that clearly, we need to be able to follow the sensing experience as it arises, as it manifests, and then as it passes away and then rests, that moment of non-activation. Directly, so that we can have the, the experience of these things happening to us. And knowing that in each moment, all of those things are happening and uh, be present for it, to see it happening so that we can begin to see through this idea of a, a self or a world uh, and see that actually uh, our capacity is to sense things and then create ourselves in the world out of it and then push that back out into the world and that that's what we're actually inhabiting. And to be at peace with that, uh, to be in a place where that's actually the experience of it. It's an interesting thing to live in a country that's as divided as ours. Uh, living in California, of course, it's a very blue place. Uh, the middle tends to be more red in the way that we've divided things up. Um, it seems quite natural in the way that I 
see the world and understand the conditions of the world. Um, and it's very different than the way that the, the more conservative uh, uh, way of uh, seeing things is. In Buddhism, of course, we talk about loving kindness practice and compassion practice and uh, a joyful practice and equanimity. The Brahma Viharas are the divine abodes. And so how do you come into this place of holding a compassionate space, even though the polarization is so great and, and the, the, the worldviews are so completely different and in, in so many ways not compatible? It isn't contradictory in a, in a sense to hold this compassionate view of the world and to see other people hold a different view because the understanding is of course that the way that we create, uh, the, the way that we all create conceptual realities through this process of, of comparing what's coming into the database and defining meaning to it so that we can easily see the, the same experience and because our conditioning is so different, assign different meanings to it, different values to it and then make the intention and action to act in the world. We have a lot of focus in Buddhism around skillful action, skillful means, seeing things clearly, making the intention and action and acting in an ethical way in the world. And our obligation to do this is not affected by people who don't do that. In fact, uh, not so much in Theravada Buddhism and in Hinayana Buddhism, where there is no Bodhisattva vow, but in Mahayana Buddhism, where there is the Bodhisattva vow, which is to continue to be reincarnated until all beings are liberated. The English word uh, ignorance or delusion um, has a negative connotation, which is uh, different in the colloquial sense than in what the the uh, Buddhist sense is that, that you don't see clearly what's happening. And so that you make uh, intentions and take actions that are unskillful. This is always coming from a point of view. Himsa is a word uh, that means not harming. And the Buddhist view is really this idea of not harming, not harming sentient beings. I saw also in the newspaper that New Zealand has declared all animals, all living animals as sentient beings. And this is quite different than the traditional Buddhist view. Um, when we were in Myanmar at, the, at a meta retreat, uh, one of the retreatants asked uh, the Sadao uh, if dogs were sentient and he said uh, they were not. In traditional ways of practicing metta meditation, you need to practice for a living sentient being in, uh, as part of the metaphysical understanding of that, that you radiate the metta practice out to a living sentient being that you know and they receive it and then reflect it back. 
and uh, sometimes in the West uh, where people are quite uh, alienated from other people, the question comes up, can I practice for my dog? Can I set, uh, set metta to my dog or my cat instead of to a human being? Because I can do that for my dog. I can hold a kind mind state and do that. And the Sayadaw said, you can't do that because dogs are not sentient. And because they're not sentient, the himsa does not apply to them in the traditional formulation of uh, Buddhism. And yet we have Western science and we engage in an understanding of uh, uh, what sentience, and sentience is in a way that's different from that. And we see quite clearly that sentience is uh, widely distributed in, in different kinds of uh, uh, animals, species. So how do you come into this place of uh, compassion, a compassionate response? And really, one of the ways that makes it much easier to do this is to see them through the idea of a solid, fixed sense of self that's constant and to see that it comes and goes, it arises and passes, and that there is no intrinsic sense of self there. Everything arises and passes, uh, so that we can uh, take on the work that's going to be necessary to bridge this extreme polarization in our country, to see if we can come into a place of peace. So all sentient beings, all beings, can live in peace uh, here. So this is actually, I think, what the purpose of meditation is, to come into that place where you can see clearly what's happening and to come into a place of peace and then to be able to relate to everyone else in that way, even if the actions that they are taking seem so uh, difficult, so unforgivable. often irredeemable. How does that sound? Possible? Um, so uh, that's really all of the remarks that I want to make tonight. I thought we'd do a little bit longer period of sitting as uh, given the where we're at. Um, any questions before we begin? Christian? I'm just curious about like your own approach for your own practice with, uh, with, with, you know, it's probably not limited to what you were describing, but, um, you know, you were saying the traditional view of meta, uh, you know, wouldn't apply to like a dog or, or I think you've described it as not applying to the deceased. Um, you know, how does, how does that sort of stuff inform your own practice? Do you sort of take, take your own stuff your own view towards it and practice sort of however, or is it sort of like, um, you know, I'm going to sort of trust, trust the system and just try and do as much, you know, in terms of the traditions or the system. And, you know, I'm just kind of curious about how someone approaches that. 
Um, I take a broad view of sentience and think that um, Himsa applies across all species and that we should be really uh, great caretakers of the world um, and all of us here. I really do see the world as this uh, complexly integrated system and that we just can't willy-nilly knock out pieces of it and expect there not to be consequences to that. And I think that we seeing these consequences, certainly with climate change and the sixth great extinction, 70% um, of the species of the, of the animals on the earth are farmed for meat. The environment is being destroyed so that we can have a greater capacity to farm for meat. Um, I don't, I, I see the system as a whole system and that you can't have these pieces uh, that are so out of whack. I think that uh, the purpose of life is to explore and discover things and be happy and that that actually is how we should orient things. I think that uh, men and women should have the same opportunity. I think people of different races should have the same opportunity. And so when I practice, uh, that's how it makes sense to me. We're humans and we, we are in relationship to other humans. We're, that's how we're, our, our physical anatomy is built. And so uh, I, I, when I practice, practice for humans because that's the connection that I think is important and that if, if you're impaired from practicing for another human and would prefer to practice for a dog, it makes more sense to me that you should be practicing for humans because that's where the, the edge is, that's where the blockage is, and that's where you'll, you'll get the, the most advantage. I think that you should practice in a way that moves you uh, into these understandings more deeply. Is that a good enough answer? I guess what I mean is more broadly when you, when you run up against, you know, when you've when you have run up against some tradition where you could make maybe a decision that was, you know, I'm going to take a sort of personal stance on this, or I'm going to go with a tradition, you know, in, in just in learning meditation, you know, have you, have you thought to sort of defer to the tradition more or, you know, where, where do you sort of give yourself the permission as a meditator and as a student to sort of make your own decisions versus going with sort of more traditional views? Um, I think that it's an exploration and that, that it needs to be satisfying and meaningful to you as the explorer. Uh, and so uh, you would have to see in what way your exploration took you and to rely on that, that intuitive sense, that wisdom mind of what's appropriate. Um, you know, I practice Western Buddhism. It's very different than Asian Buddhism. And the reason that I go to Asia is so that I can have that context, that contrast to understand it. But I can give you an example of a dialogue about this. Um, we were, uh, again, at this retreat and the, uh, 
there was a, a nun and a, a lay practitioner who gave a talk on uh, the nature of jhana practice, a metta jhana practice, and they gave a description of jhana, which is uh, from the Vasudhimaga, which is a, a document that's 700 years later than the Pali Canon is. And then the next day, the Sadao gave a talk on jhana practice from the Canon, and they don't actually agree in a sense. Um, and uh, the, the nun uh, gave the talk the way that she did because she thinks that it's easier to follow a less complex system of jhana than the canon describes. Uh, and so, but the contradiction is obvious in, in, in the text. In the Vasudhimaga, uh, the first four jhanas cover the same territory as the first five jhanas in the, the canonical version of it. So I raised my hand because I'm a smart ass and I, I like to do these things. And I said to the Sayadaw, um, which system is better, the Vasudhimaga or the canonical system? Um, and the Sayadaw said, I'm a Sayadaw, I'm a, a monastic, I'm in robes and I'm in a lineage and I have to teach according to the sanctioned teachings of the lineage that I'm in. So I would say from that point of view that the canonical version is the correct version. And I said, uh, personally, which system do you practice? And he said, I practice the system from the Vasudhimaga. Is that helping? Uh, maybe another example. When I was younger and and um, and was traveled less than I do prior to the COVID period, um, I studied bonsai, which uh, is uh, translates from Japanese into potted tree. Uh, you know what I mean, the, sh the little decorative trees. And there's a very defined. Uh, rigid set of rules about how trees should look. And uh, in the beginning, of course, you're learning all the rules and learning how to position them, where the first branch is, where the second branch is, third branch, uh, uh, you know, the angle of the branches off the trunk based on the species of the tree, the, the kind of pot, the relationship of the pot to the height of the tree, the width of the pot to the height of the tree, all of those things are very clearly defined in the rule book. But then you would see the kokofu is a, the, once a year in, in Tokyo, they have kokofu, which is the huge uh, worldwide competition for the best bonsai trees. And they have the, the different divisions. Ame uh, is the trees that are under three inches. And, uh, Sojin is under 10 inches, and then they have bonsai trees that are under three feet. But you would look at a picture of the, the, the grand prize winning tree, and you could see very clearly that the bonsai artist had violated one of the rules uh, in, the in the creation of the tree, 
And that's actually the thing that made it a, a masterpiece because you could you you knew the rules perfectly and also a way of which you could create it uh, perfection outside of the rules. So I think that uh, when we practice meditation, what we really want to do is understand what the traditional ways of practicing are. And this is an important question because in, in the West, the dominant form of meditation is a mindfulness meditation, which is completely split off and secularized so that the connections to the original teachings has been stripped out and lost. And so it's hard to know in the uh, languaging often of what it is that's being taught, what actually is being taught in terms of its relationship to the traditional way of teaching. And then to understand what it is that the intention of the traditional teaching was so that you know what actually that you're looking for um, in uh, your exploration of meditation now in, uh, in a culture that's vastly different than those cultures were uh, and what is the essential insight that you're looking for uh, so that you have, you can arrive at this uh, place of uh, liberation, of freedom, which is, I think, the, the real uh, intention of all meditation practice, to come into this place of classical enlightenment so that you can really be in this human condition uh, and thrive in it and really get out of it all of the things that are here. Um, I was talking to Dan uh, Brown, my teacher uh, recently, and he said that what you want to be able to do is see through this conventional reality uh, into the mandala, which he, which means to see the, uh, the, uh, um, the spiritual nature of life, this, uh, this uh, the word isn't coming. To see into the sacred nature of, of what this human life is and, and be in that, that, that sacred place and to clear out all of those obscurations that keep you from seeing that so that in each moment of exchange with people around you, you're in that place of the sacred and uh, participating with them in that uh, action. So I think that that's actually what we're trying to do with meditation. But if we, if it gets too far away from that and it becomes uh, something that's meant to uh, uh, reduce stress or relieve or, or make you momentarily happy, it, it, it's too far away from what the tradition was what the the intention for the practice was in the first place. Is that making sense? The um, <clears throat> in the West, for most people, science has has become the miraculous, and the metaphysical descriptions and the fantastic, magical experiences of traditional Buddhism seem um, superstitious. How can you take that understanding of the, the superstitious and those uh, uh, poetical descriptions of things and understand 
that they're asking you to see something in that that we in the West would see as a scientific description and be totally capable, totally willing to accept. So I like to talk about quantum mechanics, which seems actually quite metaphysical in a sense and quite magical in a sense. And yet, because it's that uh, uh, Western way of conceptualizing things, that seems to be quite a bit more acceptable to the way that my mind has been conditioned than, uh, you know, flying across the Yangon on, on the power of metta, which the Sayadaw describes. Can you be at peace? Can you be at peace and completely authentic? Can you express that authenticity to someone else? And can you be at peace with the response that you get from that? Can you be excited to engage people? Can you be excited to take care of them? Can you not be frightened? These are all the things that I think we practice. So we should be wabi-sabi bonsai meditators. <laughs> the, uh, the reason that I took up uh, bonsai was because I was so patient with everything. And I thought that I could learn patience by practicing with bonsai. Um, so if you've ever, have you ever gone to a bonsai ex exhibition? You go in and the trees are absolutely pristine and spectacularly placed on the first day of the show. And two days into the show, of course, they've started growing. And so they're not exactly the same. And a week later, the tree has grown out and isn't at all the same. And so it also teaches impermanence in a way that's quite remarkable. It also teaches you uh, the responsibility of care because they're very particular and if you don't take care of them in the way that they want, they die. Uh, it's, it's almost like they give you the finger and die because uh, you haven't taken care of them. And so you, there can't be a lapse of care. All of those things I, I found very useful in terms of that uh, I live um, on an upper floor and I have a terrace, which is where I grew them. And the, the, the shows are usually in June. And uh, you may know if you've lived in Los Angeles for a while that uh, the Santa Ana's come in May. And, uh, and if there was a really bad uh, Santa Ana, these are winds that come off the desert for those of you who don't live here. Um, and they could, it could literally strip every leaf off the tree in like 20 minutes. Uh, and so you'd, you'd be working, 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 and the tree would be looking really good and you'd be so excited because you finally had something that you could take and put into an, uh, a show. And then uh, in the middle of the night, the Santa Ana's would come and then you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be no leaves on the tree. <laughs> so it also was a wonderful teacher of impermanence. The reason that I stopped growing them was because I started traveling so much that I couldn't provide the care that they needed. And I thought that I, uh, 
I, I, and I, so I gave them to uh, my fellow uh, Boneside community so that they could be taken care of. And, uh, and it was quite pleasing. I, last winter I went, there's a, uh, they have a show called the Winter Silhouettes Show, which is in January uh, when all of the leaves have fallen off the trees. So you can see the branch structure in one of the trees that I had uh, uh, given up about six or seven years ago was in the show. It looked really good. It's very pleasing. All right, let's uh, do some meditation. Go ahead and take your meditation posture. All right. So what's coming up? Um, Saturday at 4.30, I'm going to read uh, from my new book that's just out called The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. So come along. I'll talk a little bit about how the book happened and what, what's in it and then uh, read from it. December 12th and 13th, I'm doing a uh, weekend uh, retreat with the Recovery Dharma Collective on relapse prevention. So if you have addiction issues and you're interested in that, the attachment approach for working with addiction, come to that. It's all day Saturday and half a day on Sunday. We will have the, the uh, Dharma maps day long in November and December, and then that series will end. Uh, this month in that class, we're mainly going to, going to be doing um, uh, meditation, and uh, so I'll give some instructions, then we'll sit in some instructions and sit, so there'll be a little bit more meditation than uh, usual. In December, on the 3rd, we're starting a new uh, level two class, so if you're interested in joining us for that, that's the meditation and attachment level two. It's a three-pillar approach, so we'll be introducing the ideal parent figure protocol there, as well as working on the development of mentalizing and also the psychoeducation around collaborative relationships. Question? I didn't, <clears throat> yeah, George, I didn't want to interrupt your, what you were saying, um, but earlier you mentioned that, um, that what we feel on the inside uh, we project, we see the world that way. Mm -hmm. I think when people are using drugs and alcohol, they're trying to maybe, or we're trying to dial in how we feel in order to see the world in a better, in a different way. I kind of made that analogy to, you know, to what you were saying. I think that addiction is an auto-regulating strategy where you're using external resources to regulate the internal state. The main problem with any of those um, strategies, although they work pretty well in the beginning, is that you develop a tolerance for them. And if it's substances quite quickly, if it's uh, behavior, some, sometimes longer. And then uh, the use of the substances becomes problematic uh, in itself rather than it acting as the regulator that it was. Uh, and and uh, so you can't get regulated without uh, causing consequences from the use of it. 
So we need to learn uh, emotional regulation strategies to replace the using strategies so that we can uh, continue to be emotionally regulated without having to rely on the external resources that we uh, did before. That's mainly the process. And then because uh, auto-regulating strategies are highly associated with dismissing attachment, if you don't do the, the underlying attachment work, you're constantly in a position of needing to use some external resource to regulate. And so you tend to, it's like uh, we used to say, changing tables on the Titanic. Uh, so. um, I do have a retreat coming up December 28th to January 2nd. Take a look at that. The uh, retreat and also the level two, we have scholarship funds available for. Um, we're going to limit the number of people in the level two class to 12. It's about half full and the retreat we're limiting to 24 and it also is about half full. So if you're considering doing that, take a look at that. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the poly word for generosity. What that means is that I offer the teaching freely, but I, freely, but I do hope that you'll support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Any amount is appreciated. There's a link on the website and also in the email that you may have received uh, that you can make a donation. Of course, if you're not with uh, resources, uh, we as a community are happy to support you in your practice. Uh, thank you for coming and we will see you next time. Bye now.